everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. Happy New Year. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, for the next few weeks, probably closer to a couple of months, we're going to be talking to the artists behind huge hits from the 80s. In some of those cases, those bands and those songs are absolutely indelible. You still hear them today. The band had a couple of hits. They're still out there. And in other cases, the song and the band are basically one and done. Maybe they've even been sort of lost to history. But they had a moment there, and we're going to talk to some of those people. And we're kicking it off with a big one for me. This is the great Wally Palmer from The Romantics. Now, of course, everyone knows The Romantics from this song right here, What I Like About You, which, if you didn't know, it actually missed the top 40 back in 1980 when it was originally released. However, it's practically ubiquitous today. They also had a number three classic in 1983 with Talking In Your Sleep. So these guys have been out there doing it for 40 years in some form or another. In this conversation with Wally, we talk about the effects of those hits on his life financially, as well as kind of um, how, how it continues to grow, how it brings in new crowds. We talk about some of those lean years, too, from about the mid-80s till, honestly, about 10 years ago, when some legal issues had to be resolved and crowds were coming back around and songs were getting played again. We also talk a lot about his side project, The Empty Hearts, which is a really great kind of also a garage rock, power pop, British Invasion-influenced band that he does. It's kind of a super group. He does it with Clem Burke of Blondie, Elliot Easton of The Cars, and Andy Babbix from the Chesterfield Kings. So there's a lot to talk about here. He's a legend in my mind anyway. And I got to give a huge thank you to former guest Blanche Napoleon for hooking us up. Thank you, Blanche, so much. I was very starstruck talking to Wally. He's a legend in my mind. I hope you enjoy this conversation. He called me from his home in Detroit. The Romantics had for many, many, many years been sort of at the top of my wish list of bands I wanted to see in concert before it was too late, you know, before you couldn't do it. Finally, a couple of years ago, I got that opportunity when you came to Denver as a part of the, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a rate, one of those radio programs all day. It was you, uh, lover boy who I just, I had just had Mike Reno on here a couple of weeks ago and, okay. um, cheap trick and Rick Springfield. And I was like fourth row right in the center, finally for the first time in my life, getting to see the romantics after all these years. I was curious now, is that the, is that really the best or the most likely way to see a romantic show these days? is as part of a sort of a, a package like that? Or do you ever go out on your own and play, you know, an hour, hour and a half of your of deeper cuts and stuff? Well, I'll tell you what. We, um, that particular show, that kind of kick-started us on the, uh, what we've been doing for the last couple of years, which has been, mm-hmm. uh, during, we've been primarily doing a lot of opening shows uh, and it was, funny enough, with Rick Springfield. The idea came from that show. After we had done, gotten done with our segment, I sat down at a table there backstage, and then mm-hmm. Rick Springfield's manager came by, and then uh, he sat down at the same table. Eventually, we started talking about that, how good it would be, how yeah. good this show was, you know, because all the bands were, were I thought, really good. 
you know, the Perfect. romantic. It was uh, so good. Yeah. Um, Lover Boy and then Cheap Trick and, you know, and, and uh, Rick Springfield. And the romantics have opened for all those bands numerous times mm-hmm. throughout the last 40 <laughs> years, you know. So we, right, right. And so we know each other we're, and um, we get along and we're good friends. And so mm-hmm. that packaging really works. Uh, and then so talking with Rick Springfield's manager, he goes, well, we may not be able to get everybody out and take this whole package out, but we're going to try and do something, you know, to get at least some of the, you know, package some of yeah. these bands on this bill and take it out and take it around the country. Because that right. one there in Denver was a one-off, you know. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah. Because, yeah, and that then, good. And so what happened the next year, sure enough, uh, you know, uh, Rick's manager went after the contact of a booking agent and we said, yeah, we'd love to do it. You know, and it, and it ended up being about 20 or 25 shows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so we had the opening slot, then it was lover boy and Rick Springfield. And yeah. then that was two years ago. Then this last summer, uh, they contacted us back again and wanted us to come on and be on the bill again to do cities that we had not done the summer before. So we agreed to wow. do that again this last summer. And once again, it was 20, 25 shows, but we were able to break away if we already had shows booked by ourselves. So as being a headliner or or sometimes other packages, we mm-hmm. were able to do both. Yeah. Now, you know, okay. when you see us in a situation where we're the opening band, we're, you know, a lot of times we're cut down to maybe anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, a, in a way, it's actually really good because you get a chance to throw your what you would call your most popular sure. uh-huh. songs or most well-known or songs that people may have heard, throwing those all together and yeah. putting them and playing them in front of people so they get the be- they you know they get your best. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that we have a lot of uh, you know when we play ourselves we do sometimes sixty to seventy-five minutes. We, uh, you know, we don't put any um, fillers in our set then either. Sure. But, but sure. you know what I'm saying? You know, the sure. sounds that you give them in a short set, they're going to really recognize them. So it's good. Yeah. Okay. And, um, cool. But if you see us in a different situation throughout the course of the year, yeah, uh, you know, we'll do anywhere from 60 to 75 minutes, uh, sometimes even 90 minutes. So we oh, get good. a chance to do... Uh, more songs uh, from our catalog from all the other yeah. albums. Okay, so do you, so the Romantics do you do go out on tour just by yourself around the country, or do you, is it always a part of a package tour? And maybe depending on who else is on the tour, you're either the opener or maybe you're the headliner or you know somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean it. It all depends, you know. I mean each okay. show is different. Sometimes if it's a show somewhere sponsored by the city or something, we end up being, you know, the headliner. Or if we go mm-hmm. play, a, for instance, a, a casino somewhere, it would just mm. be an evening with the Romantics, and that's, yeah, when, you okay, your, yeah, that's when you get your your 75-minute or <clears throat> sometimes longer, yeah. sometimes 90-minute okay. set. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. All and, right. you know, then, of course, it all depends on, on the mood of the uh, – of the band itself, but also on on the mood of the crowd, how responsive sure. they are. Were you things uh, things are never the same. They end up getting, 
either stretched out or sometimes shortened up, you know, depending on the situation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, I've been thinking about you a lot lately because a couple of months ago on the podcast here, we did a series on the great kind of unsung power pop bands of that just barely pre-MTV era. We did interviews with Sorrows out of New York, the A's out of Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. the Atlantics out of Boston. I don't know. You probably remember at least one or two, or if not all of those bands. Um, and, I remember uh, the names, but I don't think we really, you know, did shows with any of them. Uh, okay. okay. That I can remember. Okay. You know, they were I mean, all kind of coming up around the same time as you. You know, that late seventies, early eighties. And sure. I'm a big power pop fan. And what the thing that I kept coming back to is they're, they're all three really great bands. And I was thinking, I wonder what the special sauce was that allowed romantics to flourish after, over 40 years and other great bands like these guys not unfortunately do as well. And I was curious if you knew what that was. Is it where you came from? Do you think it was the fact that what I like about you, even though it was not necessarily a huge hit when it came out, it got some traction that allowed you to sort of build off of it? What do you think allowed you to succeed when so many other power pop bands have been sort of, you know, they're cult bands at this point? Well, I think you kind of hit it on the nose where we, um, you know, talking about having certain songs in your catalog under your belt, you know, so to speak. And um, we were very, very fortunate First of all, to come out with a really good first album, but any band worth their salt is going to come out. Their first album is, go- is obviously the best representation of what they're going to be like, you know. And for us, our our first album to this very day is a is a great representation of what we're of what the romantics sure is. are all about. Then, yeah. of course, that album was anchored by uh, what I like about you, which, like you said, it wasn't. It, it barely cracked the top 40, I think, when it came out, but mm-hmm. it did. We got some notoriety on it. I, I Actually, I think we got more notoriety overseas on it than we oh. did here. Okay. You know, and then to follow up what I like about you, then the, we, with When I Look in Your Eyes, and then a couple uh-huh. other songs off there. Before we had that album uh, in the underground circuit, when we first started our one of the first songs was "Little White Lies," that kind of kickstarted mm-hmm. everything. Forth got us uh, some notoriety.
So, but with what I like about you, the song just kept on getting bigger and bigger yeah. as the as yeah. the years went on. Mm-hmm. And then two, three years after the release of that first album, the second I mean the second album came out didn't do as well as the first. Uh, the third mm-hmm. album came out didn't do as well as the second, which mm. <laughs> which didn't do as good right. as the first. You know, so yeah. then yeah. Uh, we you know there comes the fourth album in Heat and. Yeah. That song is anchored by talking in your sleep. Again, that song was a big international song, but it also hit very well. It did very well for us here in the States. And at that point in time, well. it really broke through on the R. It broke through on the R and B charts enough yeah. where we got asked to do. I think in one or two weekends while we were out on the West Coast, one week was uh, to do uh, American Bandstand mm-hmm. uh, with uh, and us doing Talking Your Sleep, and the next week. I think we got a call to do um, um, Solid Gold. Well, we did Solid Gold too, but we did uh, uh, Soul Train. Soul oh, Train is what we did, yeah. Did and so really? we're on with oh, Don Cornelius. You know, I mean, one week with yeah. Dick Clark, the next week with Don Cornelius, and that's because we did yeah. a they had a dance mix of Talking in Your Sleep by Jelly Bean Benitez, you know, who had done uh-huh. I think uh, Madonna and some other bands, well, yeah. and so he did Talking in Your Sleep, and that really catapulted the song up the R&B charts. Yeah. You know, so we're a white rock and roll band on Soul Train and it was uh, and uh-huh. and it was great. But but at the same yeah. time they shipped us over overseas but we did not play for some strange reason that I to what? this day I have my own theory on it but but they yeah. shipped us out there to do television and radio to promote Talk in Your Sleep because it was that song was a international, sure, you know, top ten song. They sent you throughout the world to promote it, but it was all just through like interviews. You didn't actually go any, you didn't do a tour or perform anywhere. We didn't perform. We did television, radio, yeah, you know, TV shows similar yeah. to like uh, in France. Okay. It was just like a, sure. a it, it was kind of like either a solid gold or bandstand or you know. Yeah, or, um, yeah, one of those. Kind of like Top of the Pops or something that's like pop, that. That's pretty much what we did, you know, for that tour. Weird. Weird. And, and we yeah. did not play, we did not play there in Europe, but we did go over to Japan and we did shows out there, for okay. instance. Japan, Australia, and stuff like this. Uh, but it was weird. Some markets we just didn't play. We did the strictly promotional tours because 
apparently they needed us back here because the song was climbing the charts here and the um, uh. management and uh, agencies felt that we were worth more here than we were out there. That's a long, sure. it's a crazy story, but yeah, that's what happened. Then okay. after that, what I like about you just kept uh, coming back when it started to be in yeah. Budweiser light TV commercials. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what kickstarted uh, to get it back in the, back in vogue it was yeah, essentially yeah. bud light using it and then we you know you started just to hear the song on sporting events you know sure. alongside queens we will rock you right and you know right. stuff like this and we're in yeah you know you you watch a hockey game or a football game and it's a time for you know it was time for a yeah. timeout and yeah. you're listening <laughs> and you hear the song playing in the stadium i know, you know so. that's crazy it got to be that kind of song. And then, so getting yeah. back to your question, that's what gave the romantics the legs that we have till this very day. We're okay. having, you know, those couple of songs under our belt. Yeah. And, the, and, the, the, and then being as popular and recurring and popping up in, you know, yeah. television commercials or different movies or whatnot. Yep. And yeah. other bands were covering them. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah. Boy, I uh, I remember it well, talking in your sleep. So in 1983, I'm 10 years old, and I'm just starting to become aware of popular music and what my favorite songs are and stuff like that. And talking in your sleep it was part of the foundation of my awakening to pop music and rock music and loving music. I mean, it's it's part of my DNA at this point. But it was funny, just a couple of nights ago, I was, I was having dinner with my kids. My kids are nine, seven, and four. And they were asking me if, who I was interviewing this week for the podcast, and I mentioned you. And I pulled up What I Like About You on my phone, and all three of them knew the song. And to my knowledge, I've never played a Romantics album in the car for them or anything like that. But, well, I mean, a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old knew that song from whatever it was, a commercial or a movie or whatever, wherever. It's so ubiquitous well, at this point. Well, I'll tell you children what. children know it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. Well, most recently, I can probably say that them being familiar with the song <laughs> would probably have to go uh, thanks to um, this band Five Seconds of Summer from Australia. i heard about that, who, yeah. Who covered what I like about you, and it's been a part of their live show for the last, oh, I don't know, four years, maybe five years now.
And I've seen them perform this song when they were doing late night TV or any award show. They they would do what I like about you because it just you know their fans loved it and it was like I said it went over well for them and they did a great job of it. You know, yeah. or yeah. else your kids saw it uh, when it was um, you know when. Our version was on Shrek. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. You know, you they, never I mean, know. It's, uh, it. yeah, I know it just pops up everywhere now. It's just one of those songs. It's part of the of the fabric of popular culture. Always will be. It's a standard. Yeah. Somebody point. pointed you know out I mean? to me that uh, uh, this was probably last year or something, but they said, you know, you guys have written this generation's Louis Louis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. And I thought to myself, I go, well, yeah, because when we were growing up, when we were play, first started playing in bands back in the 60s, Louie Louie was that kind of a song where every band did it, and right. it was simple enough where if you were starting a band up, you could, it was that easy, Louie Louie, basically three chords, you know. Yeah, and so yeah. the same thing with what I like about you. A little different, a little, maybe a little bit more tricky, but still, to this generation, I mean, yeah. a lot of bands, they get together. What song do they know that's simple to get uh, to yeah. get things going? And they'll do what I like about you, you know? And I, yeah, can, I can see why. You nailed it. Now, as I mentioned, one of the things we kind of talk about on here is sort of how artists uh, maintain careers, how they pay their bills, essentially. And I'm get, I know that there's a lot of history there, and I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. But at this stage in your life, could you live off just the money you make from what I like about you, let alone any of your other songs or albums or anything else? Could you just live off what I like about you money comfortably for the rest of your life? Well, I mean, if I, you're asking me if I were to totally stop doing everything and then yeah. just post and, and wait for a paycheck to come in through the, through yeah, the mail slot in the door. Uh-huh. Well, I've kind of branched myself out in different areas where I, where I, I guess I don't have to worry about that scenario, but um, uh, it's I I can tell you that it's 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 hard for bands to um, exist just to try and collect just off of royalties. Yeah, you know, I know that's why yeah. by sales of records, it's extremely hard. The sales, sure. I mean, where's the physical? There's no physical records. You have to. Uh, you know, you have uh, streaming and you have uh, online purchases, of iTunes and everything else. You hope to collect from that. Yeah. It's just not the same as what it was before, even if you have a new album yeah. out. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's old, but it's basically the same. If you have a new album out, you have to be on a big label for them to, you know, like anything else. Yeah. You know, the the more really you nice hear impression. something, yeah. the more you force feed it down people's throats, the more popular it is. In most yeah. cases. Yeah. I just assumed that, I mean, you were, you know, you were a co-writer of a song that's, like we said, a standard. Everyone knows it. I wonder if you're able to kind of benefit financially from that barely or, I mean, I'm trying to be really sensitive here. I don't, I'm not asking for like, you know, do you divulge anything you're not comfortable with? But I would imagine having written a standard that that would create a very nice life for you. Well, I mean, keep in mind, there's, uh, there's three, essentially for uh, the romantics for our whole catalog there's pretty much there's always been three songwriters yeah okay per yeah. song it's always been that kind of thing where we where we'd all get together 
and throw ideas at, at each other and eventually get everybody's input in on it, and that's how the song would develop. So even as big as the song, or as people think what I like about you is, no matter what royalties come in, are split at the minimum three yeah, ways. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense, yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, so it, it all depends what you do with what you have. Sure. Now, yeah. I mean, we've never really stopped playing except in a few instances where we played less, but okay. always being able to go out and play and generate money by live performances. And yeah. then now it's important when you have your you have a publishing deal and you get songs are licensed. For instance, what I like about you is just used this past summer in a campaign for Coca-Cola where they had oh. the songs written on the side of the cans. Huh. And what I like about you was one of the songs that was featured and it was uh, part of Coke's campaign for about, oh, I don't know, a good three months, I think. That's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Good for you. Okay. Well, I wanted to, I want to read you. Um, I was, so I think my favorite romantics album is actually 6149. Your last one. I was reading a review of it and I want to read it to you because it encapsulates a lot of the challenges and obstacles you've had to kind of overcome in your career. Basically it says 18 years separated the release of the romantics rhythm romance and their 2003 comeback set 6149. And during that time, the band lost their major label deal, parted ways with drummer and vocalist Jimmy Marinos, I think is how you say it, yep. uh, went, went broke, discovered their managers had walked off with most of their money, struggled through a protracted legal battle to win back the rights to their publishing, and played a long string of low-rent gigs to keep body and soul together. Each thing on that list would be one of those things would be a major obstacle for any band to overcome. And you guys had to go through all of that. And I wondered if you would, I mean, if you're open to it, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on some of these things. Well, you, know? uh, you ask me which ones uh, you're intrigued okay. about and I'll, uh, and I'll do my best to answer. Okay. Okay. So, for, I mean, you know, Jimmy obviously was the singer of what I like about you. He hasn't been in the band for like 30 something years. I believe he plays on 6149, but he's not, Credit yeah. is not on the. He's not credited on it. So, what was the deal? Is there never? Is he just not interested at all in kind of coming back to the band at this stage? Well, he Nothing came back. Uh, he, he was back in the band for a stretch when we were going through this, through the uh, when we were in litigation uh, during the lawsuit against our, uh, you know, managers. Uh, mm -hmm. We were obviously in contact with one another, and we never really stopped being in touch with one another, and um, we there was a point where we got together and we rehearsed and we were writing songs for the 6149 album. Uh, and then we took that version of the Romantics out on the road for, this was, I think, 95 or 96 during that okay. stream, uh, during those years right there. So that was a good 10-year stretch that he hadn't been with the band. Okay. Well, we took that version out on the road, and we played, oh, I don't know, maybe um, 10, 15 shows one year and maybe 20 the next year or okay. so. And then it just didn't um, – it ended up not really working out the way we thought it would. So mm. the lawsuit came to an end. We cut a publishing deal, and everybody kind of went on their way. Not, well, not their separate ways. Jimmy sure. – uh, uh, didn't want to con continue on with that. 
So we went on and we finished it. We had tracks and we finished the tracks up and mm-hmm. those tracks ended up being released a few years later as the album 6149. So he's, mm-hmm. he's on there and he plays yeah. drums on there, but he doesn't really sing on there. No. Right. Right. Okay. What's, what is 6149? What is that? 6149 is the actual, the song itself, lyrically, it is about, essentially about Robert Johnson and, um, uh, and Robert Johnson's uh, encounter with uh, the devil on the crossroads of Highway 61 and 49. I didn't put that together. I've always wondered what 6149 meant. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. exactly what it is. And then some of our okay. promos has the street sign, uh, not the street sign, but the highway signs of Highway 61 and Highway 49, Got where it. they meet. Okay. And that's essentially cool. where Robert Johnson supposedly yeah. met the devil and sold his soul sure. to him and uh, came yeah. back after that encounter and was a gr- an amazing guitar player and didn't live very long, but then he had yeah. he wrote great songs and he played well and sang great, That's you know. Right. So yeah. he decided. Okay. Uh, I think it was Mike had the idea of writing a song about that, about that whole, um, that whole scenario, the whole thing of yeah, Robert kind of Johnson. Yeah, mythology of it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so, okay, cool. And we wrote the song and it seemed to work well and, uh, and then okay. ended up being the um, title of the album. Yeah. I think I it was uh, who, who titled the album. I think it was Clem Burke titled the album, 6149. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Killer. All yeah, right. yeah. Because cool. he was on two or th- at, at least three tracks, if I'm not mistaken, out there. He's so great. I want to ask you more about him in the MPS yeah, yeah. here in a little you bit. You know, so that okay. happened in that day. And, I mean, what you read from that review is uh, it, it makes it look really bleak. And maybe yeah. for some people... I guess if you're not strong-willed, it could have torn everything down and just put everything to a total standstill. But it just stopped us from playing, you know, because you're in a delicate situation once you're in the, when you're in litigation. You know, yeah. so it stopped us from playing as much as we wanted to. But on the other hand, what the guy did not mention in his review, that the Romantics with Clem Burke in tow playing drums recorded – in uh, a five-song EP in 1993. Mm-hmm. You and your folks look 
That's actually later in the in the review of sixty one forty nine. But yeah, I just thought that that first that opening part there is such a bleak synopsis of sure. you know the eighteen years that passed during that time. And so you know during that legal now the the legend or the you know the the party line on that legal battle of yours is that you guys aren't allowed to record. You're barely allowed to perform. However many years that thing goes on. And apparently your managers took off with all your money. So as this review says, you guys were broke. Is that true? And during those years, how are you making a living if you aren't at that point able to capitalize on your success? We were, we were stretching out the dollar at that time, John. I bet. I bet. <laughs> uh, but we were still – see, we were playing, you know, and we were still out there doing shows. I mean, I can – I don't have all the dates in front of me for those years, but from eight, from 1987, 88, 9, we, I mean, we're still doing shows. We're still kind of okay. in, in demand. So we played and we were, tr- and we we're living off that and whatever money was coming in from airplay and, okay. and some sales and money, but uh, there was a lot of, there were a lot of funds that were misappropriated. Sure. And that whole thing, which was part of why there was this lawsuit. And, but it all came to an end. We survived it. Everybody survived in, that was involved in the lawsuit. I mean, our old managers, they survived too. You know, sure, so, sure. Uh, everybody came out of it. It's just one of those things that every time you go to court, sure. you know who makes the money, the attorneys yeah, do. Yeah, of course, so, the, lo- the lawyers do. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they were lean years, but you were still able to make a living as a musician, the, doing yeah. whatever you could under the circumstances. Okay, I've always been curious. It, it was like it's like this, uh, you know, it's like the romantics are lost in the wilderness. It's the thousand years of solitude or something. As an outsider, I mean, this is pre-internet, yeah. you know. So during those those years, I'm thinking, where did the romant? I I miss them so much. Where did they go? You know. And as I'm getting older, and and I can go to concerts now, and I can pay for my own tickets, and you're nowhere to be seen. I'm thinking, man, that I, I would give anything for the romantics to come back. So I well, can you know, see them. I mean, we did shows in that time frame that you're talking about. The shows they were there, and we had a booking agent who was okay. finding Good. the shows for us. Like I said, we were still kind of in demand, but it was it was a kind of a it, it was a tougher time then for us. Yeah. We just had yeah. to we just had to tread whatever water there was sure. underneath us. You know, yeah, and just try and get through sure. it is what we did. But we continuously kept on, you know, writing Amazing. songs and we would record and yeah. uh, this and that and, um, you know, and try and stay as positive as, as as possible. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention is that I was I'm originally from Salt Lake City and almost nobody comes through Salt Lake City. It's better now. But when I was a kid, almost nobody went through there. So if you are going on tour I can't imagine Salt Lake City is a priority. We used to play a place tour. called Z's Place, I think, um, over in Salt Lake City. And then we played up really? Park, and, and in Park City. I, I mean, we played Park City, I don't right. know, about a half a dozen times, I think. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I was probably too young. Oh, that's so killer. 
Honestly. Maybe so, yeah. And and it was during and it was a lot during those years that you're saying saying because we oh, haven't been have in Park City maybe for about well I don't know five seven years now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, I I got to ask you something I've always wanted to know. What is the deal with Strictly Personal? I like that album a lot, but it's almost like a heavy metal album in some ways. Are you happy about that album? Was that a conscious decision? I mean, when I listen to a song like No One Like You, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not the British Invasion power pop band. almost white snake or something you know, i love it though i'm not criticizing. I love you know it. it's funny to say that because there's a there's actually a lot of people really do like that album I and do, you I'm know right. and but they're i i just take it that they're you know they're just hardcore fans of the romantics and uh but Probably. when i look back on it i mean i was a part of the i was part of the songwriting team and part of you know part of the band that you know did the recording and sang the songs and stuff so you know, it was you know it was good. It was fun. It was the first album with a different lineup, though. We had our original guitar player Mike Skill wasn't in the band then. Um, he was replaced by Cause Candler temporarily for that album, and so right there in itself was a different style of of guitar playing. And the producer that produced the first two albums, Pete Solly, did not do that third album. Uh, a fellow by the name of Mike Stone came yep. in and did that album, and he had success. I believe he, uh, I want to say he... had he, done Queen and Journey. And Journey, and, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so that may account for that type of more sure. stadium sound yeah. than anything else. And the songs were a little different, maybe from yeah. the first two albums. Because, hey, listen, uh-huh. the first two albums were essentially... The, essentially, the first two albums were were all written before we did the first album. Uh-huh. Okay? Okay. There's a couple okay. of them on the second album. There's maybe a handful of songs that were written for the second album, but the rest were songs that did not make the first album. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Okay? And then for yeah. us to do a song like 21 and Over on the second Love album... It. That was influenced by what was around us at that time. And when, when we were touring, playing uh, with a band like, uh, with a ska band, like the, you know, yeah. Specials or somebody. Specials um, or right. Sure. You know, so that was influenced by, uh, you know, by them.
Sure, you're going to pick up whatever's on the radio a little bit, but like I said, having Mike Stone behind, you know, the helm right there um, during the recording of that gave it a little bit of a different uh, feel. Yeah, and, uh, it did. You know, and so. But was that a, was that a conscious choice? Did you go into this thinking we'd like a, something with a little bit more muscle this time, or did you go in doing what you do and Mike put that on there and you and then you hear the album and you're like, you know, that's not really us. Or were you jazzed about what you were hearing? I'm just I'm curious where your mind was at when you're recording it. Was it were you consciously making those choices, or was it something that came out afterwards and you were okay or not okay with it? I think the whole scenario kind of boiled down to possibly, and uh, I see I just don't want to get quoted on this, but there is a good chance it was a combination of a couple different things. One, the second album didn't fare as well as the first album, so the mm-hmm. record label maybe thought, why not Let's take someone else who's doing another band on Columbia or CBS, mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. and they have a new guitar player now, let's see what maybe we can do, you know. but let's pick a producer that's had success with one of these other bands, bring him into the fold. Right, right. You know, okay. but then again, yeah. by not having one of the original songwriters in there, the songs didn't flesh out the same way as the songs on the first and the second album. Right, right. Well, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of Strictly Personal, but it's such an anomaly compared yeah. to some of the others. I've just always wondered what your take on it was. Okay, very interesting. Of course, you got to love the pink leather suits, you know. Right? I know, that's... <laughs> I was going to say that because that's what I mean. You know, you if you were to look at the album just from the cover, you would think, oh, this looks, this is the, it looks just like what you would expect from the Romantics. And then well, you put here, it on and some hard I'll, rocks coming at you. It's different. Well, I'll tell you what it was. That album was our take, being from Detroit, that was really our wow. take on a, on an old Motown album cover. Okay. Got it. Even Got though it. the sound was totally 180 degrees the other uh, the other way in the other direction yeah, you know sure. from the first two albums m- mind you but the look of the first of that album i forget what album we got it's somewhere here uh, i'll be able to pinpoint or think of it but it's just the old if you take a look at it put it up against sure. any other r&b group from the <laughs> 60s and stuff and they're placed yeah. the same way matching suits you know and stuff Absolutely. like that yeah, and absolutely. the thing was, I, I do have the one story that I will tell about that. Those pink suits got us booed off the stage in Chicago. Really? I remember that. We were opening for some really metal band, and we got put on that show. I'm like 90% <laughs> sure that it was UFO. We opened for them in Chicago at some big arena, oh, and wow. we got booed. The people there <laughs> were just, they, they <laughs> wanted no part of us. We came yeah. on and we're playing our rock and roll and pop stuff and really and sure. we're, and and pink leather suits on and shit and they just were giving us the finger for the first twenty five rows of everybody were boot we had, we got booed off it was oh. they're throwing shit at the stage oh it's terrible <laughs> that's that's oh, where those pink leather though. suits got us notoriety that's great though yeah oh I didn't realize you actually went on tour in the pink leather suits. I thought it was yeah. just for oh, the yeah. album cover. Oh, yeah, genius. we did. So great. 
so is there, I mean, I think I've been reading some articles on you guys that have been published over maybe the last three years. And in a lot of them, you mentioned working on new music. Of course, I got to ask, I know that new music at this stage doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot anymore, but is yeah. there, is, is there a plan at some point to put out some of these? I mean, and one thing I want to know too, going back to the empty hearts, when you write new music now, do you have to delineate which project you want to you want to give it to, or is one always a priority over the other? How does that work? Well, for the romantics, first of all, we have put out let's see two songs, and then another two came out a, a few months ago. So we've been putting out scattered songs, um, and we've been scattering them depending on on our touring schedule. And so, but we do have an a full album out that is not released yet, but there's new songs on there and there are interesting cover songs that we were approached to record for specific purposes, whether it be licensing and um, whatnot. And we took them all as a challenge to see how we could take and how we could take these songs and interpret them Mm -hmm. and give them a romantic feel. I could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The six o'clock alarm would never ring. No, no. The covers, we did them like we would do any romantic song. So it's a, they, sure. they, they sound like we do. And there's a, yeah. there's a few originals mixed in with those, with those two. And needless to say, we need to go in and continue to write and record. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are romantic songs out there that have been out this last year, and there will be more coming out uh, this coming year. Cool. Okay. So Great. that much I know. Now, when okay. you move on to the Empty Hearts, it's a different scenario because uh, that that band I was I, I was asked to just uh, if I'd be interested in um, taking part, being in this project, and a friend of mine, the bass player uh, Andy Babuke, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with uh, Chesterfield uh, Kings, Chesterfield Kings, and and he's written some great books. He's written uh, oh, really? called Beatles Gear, and it oh. describes all the instruments that the Beatles uh, wow. recorded with and played live with. Uh, all the you know the drums, the amps, the guitars. It's very, it's a very thorough, fantastic yeah. reading book. And he and that came out a few years ago. This last year, he put out Rolling Stones Gear, no and way. it's another very thorough book too. If you're into those bands. I yeah. really highly suggest to pick the books up. It's fantastic reading. He does a sure. great job. No Anyways, he asked me what if I wanted to help him flesh out some song ideas. 
and it came at a time where uh, I know when he he asked me when I was out with the Ringo back in 2011. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I said, well, if I have time to, and because I've known Andy for years, and we're good friends. We're both Ukrainian, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. we both speak Ukrainian. We're it's a oh, wow. you know, it's a it's that kind of a bond. So we know each other. And I said, if yeah, if I can help you out, my friend, I will. And so it's there started this uh, relationship for for the empty hearts, and then in turn, Andy goes, well, we got to flesh out the band, you know, and we got to mm-hmm. fill it out. And I go, oh, okay, you know, mind you mm-hmm. that I have, you know, with the romance, I've got a pretty tight schedule here with you know touring sure. and everything else. But it was always understood that that would never come in the way of anybody's projects. You know, Elliot Easton. Well, he was playing with the Cars, but then the Cars cut their tour really short when they had that album out a few years ago. Clem Burke plays, that's his bread and butter. He plays with Blondie, you know. He even played with the Romantics, you know. So he, but when Clem, when it comes time for Blondie to go, you know, obviously, Mm -hmm. he knows what he's going to do. But we didn't manage to get everybody's bodies together and, you know, put, and, put songs together and fill out and once again I'll use the term flesh out ideas. That's great. And it yeah. did and we took them into the studio and we uh, by a stroke of luck or genius, whatever way you want to put it, we brought in Ed Ed Stasium. Amazing. Uh, and he came in and he worked with the Chesterfield Kings. He worked with Clem before on some project. He also worked mm-hmm. with Elliot. I had never worked with him before but it's familiar with his work with uh sure. um you know with the Ramones and with the Smithereens and Mick Jagger's uh, yeah. solo album and he was even yeah. the engineer uh, the one that sold me on this whole thing John mm-hmm. was when when he told me that he was the engineer on Midnight Train of Georgia I go okay forget it that's it I'm sold <laughs> oh I didn't realize that I mean I know he's a legend but I didn't know that oh yeah and he's just a great guy and a Good. great talent, and he does a fantastic job. Good. And you, you play know. out with the Empty Hearts sometimes, right? Because I think that was w- over the course of the last few months when I've been trying to arrange this, Kelly had told me that you guys, you, you guys were touring or putting on some shows or something. So we every were, now and then, do you just kind of fit in some Empty Hearts stuff when you can? Yeah, we did a handful of shows last year, but then the touring got really crazy, and uh, and, it, you know, for myself and this, you know, and then us doing the shows, the romantic shows with Rick Springfield, that mm-hmm. ate up a lot. And and you couldn't really squeeze or schedule anything else in. There really wasn't any time. And then when yeah. I wasn't, then when I wasn't busy, Clem was doing shows with Blondie, and he was recording with Blondie last year. You know. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we did find time for the Empty Hearts to do a um, a holiday single.
Yeah, I've been listening to those. They're so much fun. <laughs> so great. And, I love this. Yes. Uh, you know, so, and yeah. once again, we came and we found time, uh, a short amount of time to put those songs together, uh, write them, record them, and, and Ed was behind the boards for that too. And Ed was, yeah. uh, he's, he's, he's a gift from God. What can I say? He is. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, real quick, now you mentioned being Ukrainian. What's yeah. your real name? Vladimir. Vladimir, really? Yeah. Gosh. Now, did you when you moved? Did you move? Did your folks move to the states before you were born, or were you born? <clears> yeah, in they moved here. They came over here with my older brother in 1951, I believe it was. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. And uh, you then grew I was up born here, a few years. They're speaking. Okay, so they're speaking Ukrainian in the home. Yeah, so, and all your relatives. So that's how you. Okay, I wonder yep. how prevalent that still was in your life. Okay, very cool. I've yeah, and that, and plus, when I went to school, I mean, I had uh, uh, it, it was a Ukrainian Catholic school that I went to, so it was mandatory uh, to take one hour of Ukrainian, you know, every day for twelve uh-huh. years. You know, so yeah. it always kept oh, okay. up on it. Got it. Okay. It's a um, great language. I love it. That's amazing. I'm just imagining, yeah. you know. You, the rock star who sang Talking in Your Sleep, speaking Ukrainian at home with your family. That's just, that's a fun image. Yeah, um, and it's and it's helped because I understand, you know, I understand Polish and I understand. Sure. Um, and I can read the, you know, I, I can read the language. I understand it. I can speak it, you know, and everything. So I'm yeah. pretty thorough at it. That's killer. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite? I don't always ask guests this, but I'm really curious in your in your regard, what's your, if you, you know, what's your desert island musician? If you only could take one artist's entire catalog with you on a deserted island, who would you want to listen to? Just one? Yeah. Because, oh. I mean, you, you know, because the romantics are so steeped in the kinks and the easy beats and oh. Buddy Holly and all that kind of stuff. Is that the kind yeah. of, that, is that the kind of music that still to this day Sparks your well, interest, or do you? You like forgot R&D? to mention. You forgot to mention the pretty things, the Beatles, the Stones, the Yardbirds, yeah. uh, the Who. You know, <laughs> the Creation, the Hollies. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, the uh, Dave Clark Five. You know, and stuff. Sure. That's all. I mean, it's all great stuff. I couldn't. Yeah. Have, you couldn't have picked a better time capsule to grow up in. And even to this day, I was pointing out. I. I love watching the Temptations and stuff because yeah. and being growing up in Detroit and hearing all the great Motown songs from that era mixed in with all the music from you know the, uh, from the British invasion and mm-hmm. then mixed that in with all the R and B stuff coming out from the South you know from uh, you know yeah. Memphis and uh, uh, and you know Muscle Shoals and stuff and then mix sure. that in with all the West Coast. Uh, uh, you know, bands coming out at that time in the 60s. Yeah. You put all yeah. that in a blender, you could not pick a better time to grow up as far it. as music goes. I don't know. I liked growing up with the romantics a lot. Oh, there you go. Well, that's fine, I too. Did. Well, the I only did. reason you like that is because we were able to absorb all those influences sure. I just told you about. Yeah. And, and some of it... I would like to think that a lot of those influences come out in the music that that you know we write I ourselves. It. I believe it. I still remember staying up late to watch the video for One in a Million on Friday night videos. Something about the- 
My band when I was 10, 11 years old. Uh, you just like that soda jerk that was in there. That's all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just liked you guys. Yeah. All right. So you got to tell me if, I mean, I mentioned this earlier. You got to tell me some of your favorite stories. Did you ever meet a hero or did you go, did you get good feedback from a, from somebody you admire who liked your band? Did you see anything nuts? Did you, any, what are some of your favorite, when you think about your 40 years as a rock star, what is just the craziest memory that pops to mind? It could be recent. It could be old. It could be the first time you heard yourself yeah. on the radio, whatever. Well, I mean, the first time we heard ourselves on the radio, for instance, we were, um, we were in a van and, you know, we were and going to a show and we just pulled over and whoa, whoa, cranked it up. And it was just amazing to hear yourself coming out out of the speaker in the van and how good it sounded. And then I yeah. remember another instance when we when we hit Casey Kasem's top forty, and they, we were waiting to hear where the song was, and there's talking in your sleep in the top five, you know, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, it's fan, that's a fantastic experience there. Going yeah. overseas, for instance, was great for the Romantics. We were on at eight o'clock, I think. It was eight o'clock in the morning in the Netherlands. We were. It was a festival. And we go, there's nobody going to be here, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but we have footage of it. And if the footage oh, just surfaced from 1980. And we oh, come out there, and it's fucking packed with people oh, at wow. 8 o'clock in the morning. And we did wow. a short set, but it's all documented. Somebody, they taped it or filmed it all. And it's out there somewhere. And um, we hope to get a copy Probably of it. Probably on YouTube. Maybe it's you on know, YouTube. Yeah, being on, being able to go and tour with the Kinks, for instance, yes. being a huge fan of the Kinks, being able to hang out with them or stand on the side of the stage or them being gracious enough to invite us at, after the show to uh, get together and stuff. I, I you know, that yeah. was forget yeah. it. That was one. One of the other things then, and well, I just mentioned the fact that we got booed off. That was a, quite an experience. A great story <laughs> there, right? <laughs> Then when I was out with Ringo, we played, speaking of, uh, the first show we did when we went out to Europe, we did a tour in Europe. The first show we did, we rehearsed in England, Uh outside of London. We had a couple weeks of rehearsal there. 
The first show we did was in Kiev, in the Ukraine. Oh, really? Okay, you're, so you're that being for Ukrainian, me, that's got to be cool. That yeah. was a kicker. I had obviously never played there, and it was very special for me to go uh-huh. there. And sure. when we were there, since I knew the language, we sat down and, you know, we, there was a press conference, and Ringo said, you're, you're coming over here sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. So, and I was, you know, because the, they were asking wow. me, there were reporters obviously from that neck of the woods there, the Ukraine and from Russia and Moscow, because we played there afterwards, you know, yeah. after Kiev. And so I was able to, you know, conduct myself, I hope, to this day properly. Sure. Oh, you know, but it was amazing. a great kick for me to be able to play there in front of my people, you know. I bet. I, bet. I mean, Were you, my people are here in the United States, States, too, because that's where I was born. But, you know, being Ukrainian, yeah. it was a great experience there. That was great. Were you able, were you able yeah. to speak Ukrainian on the stage? Like yeah. Like crowd yeah. banter and everything? That must oh, have yeah. blown their yeah. mind. See, this big I didn't want to do American it too much band. because, you know, yeah. that's not my show. You know, this yeah. shows the people are not there to see me. The people are there, to, you know, to hear, to see Ringo and, and sure. you know, and to see him and to hear his songs and the Beatles songs. We're just there to, you know, once again, I use the term to kind of flesh things out, you know. And sure, and sure. our job is to make him sound good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, oh, you know, cool. and then after that, um, we played another great one. I'll, I'll, I'll say is Ringo's 70th birthday party. No way. Really? We, he played, we, uh, he was on tour and he made, his, everybody made sure that he played we played New York City for his 70th birthday party. Wow. And, Do you um, believe you grew up a Beatles fan and here you're playing no, Ringo you have no idea. 70th birthday? You have no idea. I'm standing. I'm sure the kicker was for me to be standing on stage, first of all, sandwiched between, first of all, just to be sandwiched between Edgar Winter and Rick Derringer. Oh. That's one thing on its own. Okay. And Gary Wright on the other side of the stage. And, yes. You know, yes. and then Richard Page. Yes you know, playing bass, and I turn around and, you know, Ringo's playing drums on what I like about you and talking in your sleep. Are you kidding me? You know, but after we played his 70th birthday party, going to that party he had, the after party, and just meeting, you know, like I'm a big fan of, once again, I named those bands. I didn't name The Move or ELO, but... Ooh, good one. I'm a huge fan. Jeff Lynn fan too, and meeting yes. meeting him and just talking with him for a little bit was great. Meeting McCartney, that oh. type of thing, you know, it just yeah. that party was huge in itself, you I know. Bet. So, I bet those oh, types of things, you. you know. And all I can say too, these uh, the tours that we were just on last summer with Rick Springfield, great guy, yeah. great guy, I, and talk about because you mentioned yeah. the Easy Beats, you mentioned the Easy yeah. Beats. Mm-hmm. And right. he, I started talking to him about that. He knows them inside and out. Isn't that okay? wild? And the thing that got me was, remember he started, and he's been doing an Easy Beat song for the longest time in a set. And sure. right there, when I hear him do that, I'm sold. He's a rock yeah. and roller. Great guy. Oh, he yeah. Is. He is. Yeah. Yeah. I think thanks to that Sound City documentary that Dave Grohl put out a couple of years ago, People yep. are starting to kind of recontextualize Rick Springfield. I think 
he's such a great musician and his music is so good, but he kind of got marginalized probably because he was just too handsome and he was kind of a, he was a soap opera actor briefly. And so just for whatever reason, it doesn't, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. And I feel like that's starting to finally change a little bit where people are starting to come around and realize Rick is the real deal. Well, you know what, though, I mean, you know, you know let's face it, he's, a, he's, he's on a different level. He's a, he's a movie star, you know, I mean, yeah, he's a yeah. rock and roll, it's, you know, he's just on a little different scale, but yeah. nonetheless, he's really down to earth and just a great guy. Good, good, I'm glad. Well, Wally, this is fun. I love you a lot, and I can't, I am so grateful that you talked to me. You've been a part of my life since I became aware of my love for music. You were there catapulting that. And I just want to thank you for everything you've put out in the world because you're the best. And wow, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Best. You know, it's a, like I said, it's, a, uh, well, you know, first of all, you made talking about all this, you know, very easy. And it was oh, a good, good way to go where you were able to just, you know, kind of ask me about this and that and, and l- let me rattle off you know, whatever I could about it. So it worked. There you have it, the great Wally Palmer. Amazing. I don't get the impression that he does a lot of media. I don't know for sure. I haven't seen a ton of it. So I'm especially honored that he talked to us, guys, and that he told us his story. That is incredible to me. Once again, thank you, Blanche Napoleon, for hooking us up. I am so grateful. Now, if this is your first time joining us, as I said, the next couple of months are going to be devoted to the artists that had huge hits in the 80s. And next week, we are talking to another legend, former tour mate, actually, of the Romantics, the unmistakable Fee Waybill of the Tubes. Fee is one of my favorite personalities in all of entertainment. It is an epic conversation. Tons of stories, hilarious, ups and downs, candid, honest. I love this guy. So if you love the romantics, you'll probably also love the tubes. If you don't already, come back next week and listen to our conversation with Fee Waybill. It's incredible. I figured since I mentioned that the 6149 album is probably my favorite romantics album, I should probably close it out with another song off that album. So this is track one, Devil and Me, from 2003's 6149. There were a ton, I mean, it's hard to pick one romantic song. They're all amazing, but I figured I'd better go with this one. It's really good, and it's probably lesser known. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man for producing the podcast. Gang, if this is your first time listening to us, go back into the archives. We're at thehustle.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can check the archives. This is what we do. What are the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of rock stardom, however brief or long that period may have been? That's what we focus on here. Those are the stories that we tell. I hope you'll go back in there and subscribe. Find some other episodes you like that interest you. Check them out. Send me a message on Facebook if you want. Tell me a band that you love, that you'd love to hear from, that you don't hear from often enough. You can just find our page and like it. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter, which I'm barely on, at thehustlepod. All right, gang. Next Tuesday, the, the 10th, We will be back with Fee Wayville. Thanks, everybody.